Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation. My guest today inherited a Fortune 500 company back in 2000 in the worst time of its history. The sales were stagnant. The culture was a toxic environment in a toxic city under toxic management. So what company am I talking about? Well, we all grew up eating their canned soup as kids. You probably have a can right now sitting in your pantry. Yes, Campbell's Soup Company was in horrific shape until our guest, Douglas Conant, took over as their CEO in 2001. Under Doug's leadership, Campbell Soup went from having the worst employee engagement in the Fortune 500, according to Gallup, to having the best employee engagement. They went from last to first and ended up outperforming their competitors. Douglas Conant is an internationally renowned business leader, keynote speaker, and influencer with over 40 years of leadership experience at world-class global companies. He's been in roles like president of the Nabisco Foods Company, CEO of Campbell's Soup Company, and chairman of Avon Products. Doug is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Touchpoints, Creating Powerful Leadership Connections in the Smallest of Moments, which we're going to get into in detail. Doug is the only former Fortune 500 CEO who is a New York Times bestselling author, a top 50 leadership innovator, a top 100 leadership speaker, and a top 100 most influential author in the world. In 2011, he founded Conant Leadership, a mission-driven community of leaders and learners who are championing leadership that works in the 21st century. So if you're looking for breakthrough tips and advice on becoming a better leader, you'll want to take out a notebook because class is in session. So let's dive in and learn from a true leadership legend, Douglas Conant. Here we go. So it's my pleasure to have Doug Conant join me on the podcast. Doug, welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Hello. It's great to be here. So I usually uh, start off with a question that's really more about you. So tell us, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? The sunrise. I'm at a state in life where I'm getting, I'm getting up remarkably early, between four and five. I make a cup of coffee, and I sort of sit in one of my favorite chairs, and I just, I love the sunrise. The challenge is to stay awake all the way through to the sunset. But I, I love the sunrise. That's what makes me smile every day. And when it's a gray day, I've got to sort of make my own sunrise. And it, that's a little harder, but I do all right. Good, good. So, Joe, you have a compelling story about Campbell's turnaround during your tenure as CEO. And, you know, we have this whole new generation that may not have heard uh, about that experience. So that's why I wanted to bring you onto the podcast uh, back in 2001, Campbell's 
was pretty much on life support before you took over. So let's do a kind of a before and after comparison. Bring us back to uh, when you took over. What, what did you see and, and what did it eventually become? In 25 words or less. Sure. Uh, no, all kidding aside. Well, I showed up in uh, January 8th, 2001, fresh off the heels of working uh, the Nabisco Food Company for about nine years, where I had been hired to go in right after Barbarians at the Gate, the world's largest LBO, KKR, had acquired this massive company. And it was a very toxic environment and very challenging. And I thought after Nabisco, I could do anything. And then I got to Campbell. And I found Campbell was even more troubled. We were an old economy canned soup company, headquartered in the poorest, most dangerous city in the United States, Camden, New Jersey. 75,000 people, 70 murders a year. Ouch. I mean, by comparison, New York last year had 260 murders in, the, in New York City. We had 70 in a city of 75,000 people. So it was, it was a, a difficult situation. We had lost half our market value in one year. We were under investigation by the SEC and the Justice Department for some of the transactions we had advanced and some of the business practices we had utilized to try and stay afloat. And as a part of the process, there was a lot of downsizing going on. And so everyone who worked there had someone either to the left of them or to the right of them that had been let go and let go in probably not a very good way. So uh, business was not good, morale was not good, it was a toxic environment in a toxic city. Uh, The first uh, time that I I actually went to the building, somebody picked me up in Philadelphia and drove me to the site and it looked like I was going into the minimum security prison. We had razor wire all around the facility and guard stands in the parking lots. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And that was ostensibly to help people feel safe because what was going on in Camden couldn't get into the building. But you also felt like you were going to work in a prison every day. The building had was very run down. They had cut all the, illustratively, they had cut all the plant service that maintained all the plants in the building. They had eliminated that, but the plants were still there and dying. It was just a very difficult scene. The building itself was a 100 years old. It felt like it, at least. It felt like a giant old high school. And we were being compared to a buggy whip as a company because we were selling the same product we'd been selling 100 years earlier. So it was a, just a, a very difficult situation. It was clear to me in the spirit, of, and Jim Collins had just written Good to Great at the time. Jim has since become a good friend, and, and I had been working with Stephen Covey before that, and I had landed on this core belief that uh, leadership is all about the art and the science of influencing others in a specific direction. That's my definition. But it was all about the people. It had nothing to do with me. And the people were so depressed and demoralized you just couldn't imagine competing in a very competitive sector, the food industry, with an old economy mindset and winning or even holding your own. So I could understand why there was, uh, there was anxiety about our ability to compete. What I found was that we, we had the heart of, of a real competitor. We just had a, 
focus on uh, valuing the people. The first day I was there, I said some words and I said, we can't expect you to value our agenda as a company, in my opinion, until we tangibly demonstrate to you that we value your agenda as a person. In my experience, it just doesn't work any other way. To me, that's intuitively obvious, but proven over time. So I said, our challenge is to demonstrate to you that we value you. And we're going to step up in day one and start demonstrating that we do that. And quite frankly, I think there were a lot of jaded folks there who didn't believe that. But then we just put one foot in front of the other. And over the course of the next decade, we, uh, we built up some credibility with our folks. And the more we gained credibility, the more they leaned into our agenda we became very competitive and we outperformed the food sector nicely over that period of time. And uh, we went from having the worst employee engagement in the Fortune 500, according to Gallup, to having the best employee engagement in the Fortune 500, which had never been done before over that time frame. So we went from worst to first on engagement. We had good, solid financial performance and we ended up uh, blooming in a pretty desolate place. Hmm. Yeah. So talk to us about you developed this Campbell success model. Can you touch on each of the four components, but then let's really dive into the winning in the workplace component, but go ahead and go over the others as well. Well, let's talk about the model in its entirety and then go into winning in the workplace. Perfect. And this grows right out of the conversation we just had, because I just cannot believe you can win in the marketplace if you don't first create a winning workplace. And this was very consistent with Jim Collins' work about, you know, you, you got to get the right people on the bus before you can get the right strategy and before you can begin to execute. So that's what I was doing. We were getting the right people on the bus and we were creating a highly energized community of people at Campbell. And so we believed we had a win in the workplace. As we won in the workplace, we thought that would translate into winning in the marketplace, which it did. And then the third bucket was, as we began to win in the marketplace, we were going to be able to win with our communities and be able to spend back to support our local communities where we did business and to support our family farmers who supplied us with all the products. And so we wanted to win in the workplace, win in the marketplace, win with the community, And we said, underneath all this, we have to win with integrity. Now, some people would say that went without saying, which I understand. But we were under serious scrutiny from, from, as I mentioned, a number of government agencies regarding our business practices. And I wanted to just put it out there that we were going to be beyond reproach in terms of the way we conducted business. And uh, I was not uh, afraid to say it. And so... That was our model. We had four buckets, win in the workplace, win in the marketplace, win with the community, and do all of that by winning with integrity. Workplace was first. And we believed until we had the right people on the bus using Jim Collins' language, there was just no way we were going to be able to compete with some very well-heeled consumer food companies, Uh, consumer food companies I'd worked with, like uh, General Mills and Kraft. So we had to get the right team on the field and, and we had to get them energized. So in the first three years, uh, I had to do some difficult things uh, with the leadership of the company. We had our top 350 and over the first three years, we turned over 300 of the top 350 mm. leaders. Wow. And I had quite honestly, I'd never been a CEO before. I, nobody could have been more 
prepared to be a CEO than I was because I of my prior experience uh, before they ever were one. But I still had never been one before. And there were things where I, you know, quite frankly, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And so I was nervous about it, but we had to have the right people. There's just no way we were going to be able to compete. So we defined what we thought success looked like. We created something we called the Campbell Leadership Model. And we had six expectations of our leaders. And over the first two years, we rolled that model out. We did employee engagement work, and we said to our our leaders, you need to get with the program or we're going to have to make some tough calls. And I said, the first year, I don't even want to see whose name is attached to employee engagement. We had employee engagement for the 600 largest work groups we had. Mm. I said, I don't want to see any names in year one. I'm interested in seeing names in year two, and I'm going to get involved by year three but I know it's going to take a while to get this going. Stephen Covey had a great line. He said, Doug, you cannot talk your way out of things you behaved your way into. You just got to behave your way out. And so as a management team, we sort of had to behave our way out with the people that work there. I had 350 leaders. I also had 19,650 other people who were working for those 350 leaders who I had to be paying attention to also. But I needed to give the leaders a chance to get with the program. And so over the first two years, some of them self-selected out and said, we don't want to do it. Many of our best leaders had left before I was hired because it was collapsing. And then several leaders, many leaders self-selected out. But by the end of year two and going into year three, it was like, enough's enough. We've got to get this right. And we made some difficult calls. We did our best to make sure everybody was placed as they were let go. and uh, But we did turn over 300 of the top 350. Wow. We promoted 150 people from within. And we went out and hired 150 blue chip consumer packaged goods people to complement all the internal promotions. And we had a whole new leadership team by the end of year three that stewarded the company for the next seven or eight years while I was there. And that group, to my knowledge, had the highest ever engagement scores eight years later, well after the honeymoon was over. Gallup employee engagement at the time, they did what they call the engagement ratio, which was how many people are highly engaged divided by how many people are not engaged. All right? Yeah. And they would say that 12 to 1 was excellent. All right? That was world class. Right. one ratio, 12 people wildly engaged for every one person that isn't. And basically, if you had a group of 13 people and you had 12 people wildly engaged, you wouldn't worry about the 13. So 12 to one was world-class. By the time we were done with that group, uh, seven and eight years later, we were 77 to one, which they'd never seen before. We had four people who were not engaged. It didn't really matter. So we just had a, we had promoted some high potentials. We attracted some young Turks in who wanted to change the world. We did talk about it as this was a real challenge. People said it couldn't be done. You know, how are you going to turn around a sleepy old canned soup company in Camden, New Jersey? And so we were all, a big chunk of this is we want to leave a legacy of contribution here that's meaningful. And we got a good team in place and We focused on winning in the workplace. 
interestingly, as people exited over those three years, and I thought employee engagement overall is going to go down because they're going to wonder what's going on. Every time we made big changes, employee engagement went up. Hmm. And basically what they people were saying is, we knew you had to make these changes. We're just waiting to see if you were willing to do it or not, or if you're all talk and no action. Right. So our engagement went from 1.6 to 1 to 2 to 1 to 4 to 1 to 6 to 1 during this period of time. And every time we got a new report once a year, I was thinking, oh, here I go. I'm going to be out looking for a job here soon. And then the employee engagement came back and it was better than the year before, which was mind boggling. Along the way, as we made all these changes, we also had to get the business going. So we had a a focus strategy. We started executing with excellence and, and as we got better people in place and the processes defined, we started to gain momentum. And by the end of year three, we were at a point where we had stabilized the company and then we were going for growth over the next seven years. This is just a tip for your, your fans. My experience is any position you go into, you have three years. If you don't hit stride by year three, you're going to be looking over your shoulder. The first year, it's the other guy's fault. You know, I'm doing the best I can with what I've been dealt with. I'm just trying to fix what happened before I got here. The second year, you're saying, well, we're learning. And, you know, and by year three, I think we're going to have it. And then by year three, you sort of have to have it. So every job I went into, I tried to take the long view And I tried to view it in terms of three years, not a one-year wonder turnaround. And I tried to embed this continuous improvement culture everywhere I was that wasn't a flash in the pan that was going to be sustainable in some way. And we did that at Campbell in the midst of a real tough economy and some uh, a real mess, a messy economy. Yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And I appreciate you uh, delving in in such great detail. I want to talk about, you know, Campbell Soup won so many awards uh, while you were a CEO there. You know, best companies to work for, a few consecutive years. But uh, the one that you're extremely proud of is the Catalyst Award. Tell us what that is and why are you so proud of that achievement, Doug? That was an amazing story. Catalyst is the foremost woman organization ad- advocating for opportunities for women in business. Felice Schwartz, the founder, wrote the seminal book on the subject, which was all about breaking through the glass ceiling. And she was the founder of it. Uh, and they, in a constructive way, have championed uh, companies stepping forward, creating pipelines of women, of opportunities for women that would lead ultimately to uh, higher levels of representation in the workplace at at the appropriate levels. Uh, they've done just a lot of good work. And when I first got there, again, we were a sleepy old soup company and we were run by white men who were trying to decide what women at home, what kind of soups they should be making, mm. which when you think about it is somewhat comical. So I had catalysts come in and, and, and study our diversity and inclusion practices. And much like employee engagement, we were sort of an island in Camden and not really connected to the rest of 
the corporate world. And uh, they did the survey and basically said, this is as bad as we've ever seen in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion uh, practices. And so, you know, nine years later, we were recognized by being having the best practices basically in the world around diversity and inclusion. And they helped jumpstart the journey. They were very frank and very tough and helped guide me uh, because I never worked in a place that needed such remedial help. And uh, we hired the first ever head of diversity and inclusion who did a great job. Gwen Houston, who was, she did such a good job for us. She was hired by Microsoft to go do diversity and inclusion there. Wow. And uh, uh, she, she did a terrific job. We brought our diversity and inclusion practices to life. We did our first ever affinity groups, now called human resource groups. And we started uh, new practices for attracting, developing, leveraging, and retaining women. And uh, I populated my executive staff with, we were 40% women on the staff, and my successor was a woman. We had women in key leadership jobs throughout the company. And uh, Catalyst was focused on women, but we advanced our agenda with uh, globally for women, but also other uh, underrepresented populations, including the LGBT community. Mm. Uh, the most interesting uh, community we had was the millennials. You know, we were doing all these affinity groups around African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, women. And the millennials came up and said, wait, we, do, we need our own group. You know, <laughs> we, we, we need to pay more attention to us. And I, I loved it. And I said, that's great. Come back and tell me how we ought to do it. And I loved their solution. They came back and said, basically, we talk to each other enough as it is. What we need is a cross-generational group. And they called it the bridge group. Hmm. And they said, we need people from multiple generations all in the same room talking about issues and learning from each other. So the millennials led us to creating another affinity group called the Bridge Network, which built a bridge across four different generations in the workplace. And it was awesome. Now, I've been gone for seven years uh, from Cam- six or seven years from Campbell. I don't know what the status of any of this is anymore. But while I was there, we had a level of trust and candor uh, that was inspiring to, to hear every day. Every day, someone was, you know, championing a, a thoughtful point of view, and it, we had good civil discord on it and uh, made you proud to be there. Yeah, that's great, Doug. I love that. I love those examples. The millennial one is a bonus for me. I want to transition to your bestseller released in 2001. And that's the book, Touch Points. Doug, you have this whole section in the book uh, where you, you call leaders to commit to mastery. You said the higher up you go, the more people are going to be watching you and the more consistent you need to be. So, the, so my question is to master leadership. Well, you actually propose three ways that, that leaders should lead, and that is with your head, with your hands, and with your heart. Can you explain what each one entails, head, hands, and heart? Yeah. I often talk about being tough-minded on standards of performance and tender-hearted with people. 
in my experience and in the experience of everybody I've been teaching and coaching, you know, we could do it with you right now. If you think about someone who had a profound influence on you in your life, pick a teacher or coach, just imagine someone. And you take a minute, you're going to imagine this person. Unfortunately, it's very rarely a boss, but you think about a grandparent, an uncle, or whatever. You think about that person, you say, did that person have high standards for you? Absolutely. Did that person care about you? Absolutely. And so we're going to have this conversation about leadership right now and head, heart, and hands. But basically, everybody knows what it looks like. This person was there for you. They knew how to say just the right thing in just the right way at just the right time. And they had a profound influence on you in your life. That's the direction we're going here. You don't have to be Gandhi to do this, okay? We've all experienced leadership from people who had high standards for us and cared about us. And fundamentally, we need to be more like them than we are today in a way that works for us. So that's the bottom line on this. But let's talk head, heart, and hands. You know, we have people in our workplace that are left brain and right brain, okay? The head says there has to be a logic to what we do because they're hungering for consistent thinking. So they know where to go. Leaders need followers. And followers need to know where leaders are going. They need to be able to figure it out. Uh, And so leaders, in my experience, have to have a head for leadership and know how they want to show up as leaders and do it consistently. Logic is the governing idea there. Right. Heart is about the governing logic has to do with uh, uh, caring and showing up with great authenticity. Uh, the head sort of says, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm competent. I know how to do it. And now I do what I say I'm going to do, and I'm going to show up very authentically. The governing logic for the head is uh, the governing theme for the head is logic. The governing theme for the heart is authenticity. And that And the hands we talk about is developing the practices that allow you to bring your logic and your authenticity to life when you show up in these moments. So you need to develop practices that are telling people, here's what I believe in, here's how I'm going to show up, and let me show you how. I'll give you a simple example. When I I was fired from a job once, and my outplacement counselor said, you're going to be a horrible interviewer. You know, you're an introvert. I know it's hard to believe, but you're an introvert, and you don't speak unless you're spoken to. You're shy. You know, you're just going to be a horrible interview. You're never going to get a job. And this is a guy who loved me and who was a mentor for me until he passed away 13 years ago. He said, you've got to have some kind of signature practice here as you go on these interviews to kind of differentiate yourself. So I stumbled upon this thing that introverts tend to be more comfortable by themselves and like to write things. So when I went for an interview, I would meet the receptionist, executive assistant, I'd go to meet people, and I'd probably meet 10 people there. I would get all their names. At the end of the day, I would go to the coffee shop next door and I would handwrite a note to each person there, including the receptionist, thanking them for giving me the time of day and saying how much I appreciated. I would then walk them over to the receptionist and ask them to have them delivered that day. So I started writing these 
damn thank you notes. And when I would go back the next time, the receptionist who had never had a thank you note from anybody remembered me right off the bat and she, he or she would say, oh, who are you seeing today? Let me give you a tip. And then the executive assistant who worked in HR who was walking me around would say, I never got a thank you note before. Thank you so much. Who are we talking to today? Let me help you. And I just saw the power of, in a genuine way, thanking people for helping me. So I started write, I, I started notes then. And then when I got to Campbell, I had a long commute and I would write 10 to 20 notes a day uh, to people who were making contributions of real significance. It was my way of bringing, it was a practice I had of bringing to life the strategy we had and to do it in an authentic way where I was personally thanking them for doing something that was good for our company. And oftentimes we'd federal express those to the person's home, 10 to 20 a day for 10 years, six days a week. When I retired, uh, somebody said, how many notes did you write? You know, it was a simple little, it was a little practice I had. And we did the math and it turned out to just employees, I'd written 30,000 notes. Wherever you went in Campbell, you would see a note, a handwritten note from me pegged on their cubicle saying, thank you for getting that project done on time under budget. Thank you for advancing this idea. Thank you for leading this program for us. And that little habit, that little practice was reinforcing the logic of what we were doing. It was being very, done very authentically and genuinely. And it built a relationship between myself and the employees that became pretty unassailable. And uh, we only had 20,000 employees. I'd sent out 30,000 notes. Everybody had, had at least one. And I'm talking about including the factory floor people. It became a signature practice. That's what the hands do. The hands bring to life your strategy in a very authentic way. Mm. That's an example of a hands and practices. So it's strategy, authentic, logic, authenticity, and practices. Yeah, and I'm so and that's glad. That's how you make it work. I'm so glad. Thank you. And I'm so glad that you, uh, you mentioned your signature way of uh, showing up with your hands with the, with the thank you notes. That story has gone over the whole world, Doug. And I'm glad that you shared it here on this podcast. And just to recap that, the head, heart, hands way of, of leading, I'm actually looking at your book right now at this diagram. So basically to recap is if you lead from a place of heart and hands, but you have no head in it, you're illogical. If you lead with your head and hands, but you have no heart in it, you are inauthentic. And if you mm -hmm. lead with your head and heart, but not with your hands, you are incompetent. So speaking to the uh, leading with the heart, or in my case, I'm, I'm elevating that conversation by calling it leading through love and action, uh, mm -hmm. which can be off-putting for a lot of people. They misconstrue it and go all kinds of, kind of different directions with the word love, when what I truly mean is that love and action is that you show up with, it's the agape love, Right. It's the, the, the love that you speak of as a caring environment or caring mm -hmm. for your people, for their performance. And I've found that you can't do that in a workplace that is operated through fear, where there's fear-based management structures in place. Doug, so my question is, in your view, why do people lead by fear instead of care and love? 
there's a great book written on this subject, and it's uh, written by Blaine Lee, who was one of Stephen Covey's founding partners at the Covey Leadership Center. Blaine's passed away, but he wrote a very helpful book to me called The Power Principle. And he said there are three ways to exercise your power. One way is through fear and intimidation. And you say, if you don't do this, you're going to lose your job. I mean, basically, you know, and people will do it. But you leave behind a reservoir of ill will, which is going to be very toxic the next time you ask them. And they're also going to be willing to consider other alternatives if anything else comes up. So it, it doesn't help with retention. You can use fear and intimidation. And then his, his second power principle was transactional power, which is basically pay for performance. If you do this, I'll give you a quarter. And one hand washes the other. You help me, I'll help you, transactional. And that's the way most of the corporate world works is transactional, my observation. And then he said there's a third way. And then, and then he had me thinking about people who had had a profound influence on me, a coach, a mentor, some of the conversation we had earlier. And these people had the most profound influence on me in their life, in my life. And he said, did this person use fear and intimidation? I say, no, not, you don't get it. That isn't the relationship. Well, was this person transactional? No, they weren't transactional. And he landed on this person honored you. The concept of the book was influence with honor, the power principle influence with honor. This person honored you. And because they honored you, you honored them and you honored the agenda that they said, they said, and you didn't want to let them down. So I think fear and intimidation can work in the short term, but it will be, in my experience, it will be the undoing of anyone. If, if you have a high churn job where you can just replace somebody with somebody else, maybe you can get away with it. But if you're attracting highly competent knowledge workers who are, are going to go the extra mile for you and are going to represent you well when you're not in the room, which is 999 out of 1,000 times if you're a leader, uh, you want people who are going to be either working transactionally or honorably, hopefully always honorably. And you don't want to have to rely on people who have this reservoir of ill will. But what are we seeing today? We're seeing a high-stress environment. We talked about the fire hydrant of life washing over everybody. We're all swamped. Uh, we oftentimes can be caught and not our best. And people under pressure to lash out and not be at their best, which is why we think you need to really pay attention to developing your touch in management situations. But I, I think it's a response to a, a time-starved world that's becoming more demanding. You're being asked to do more, better, faster with less, and uh, a lot of stress out there. Uh, I don't think anybody, if in the clear light of day, would say fear and intimidation will always be the way to go. We have leaders in this world who believe that. I don't subscribe to it. Mm. Yeah. Doug, uh, I want to throw, speaking of love, I'm going to throw some love your way right now. Is there uh, anything you want to tell us about Conant Leadership, your company, and uh, anything that you're working on right now that people should know? Got one thing on uh, uh, your love concept. I've been inspired by, of all people, Conan O'Brien. Uh, 
<laughs> okay. Honor O'Brien has, has a great quote, which doesn't completely carry my message, but it's, it's a great start. And I saw this quote and I thought, this is so elegantly simple. And, and the quote was, uh, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Mm. Work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. And, you know, I think you have to have a few other things going on here. But that's not a bad place to start. <laughs> work hard, be kind to others. It's remarkable how they'll be kind to you. And then you won't believe the things that can happen. So I'm a big believer in, in this agape love, this kindness uh, quotient. And I do think in the fullness of time, I think we're going to discover as we learn to live with all the technology that's coming at us, we're going to come to discover and treasure kindness. We're, we're finding our way through this right now. This is my opinion. Uh, in terms of Kona leadership, I'm trying to finish my next book. I've been on, I've been on sabbatical for a few months trying to get it done. We're we're in the home stretch, and it'll be published in the first quarter of next year. Oh. And uh, that is uh, what excites me right now because I believe that leadership, the formative leadership thinking, a lot of which is being advanced today, is being uh, is based on archaic principles from uh, the 20th century, and we're in a 21st century world. And the academic people are lagging. There are popular leadership gurus uh, who have something meaningful to say, but they've never run anything. <clears throat> they've never had to, you know, get up and go to work every day and turn over 300 of their top 350 people. Right, right. They've never really walked a mile in the shoes of many of us working people. I was working for 40 years and I started out at the bottom and tried to climb my way up. So I have this practitioner's point of view and I have a point of view that, that we need to reimagine how we advance and develop uh, leaders in the 21st century and that's the book and that's what we're working on right now. And that's what I'm most excited about. And then I'm doing a lot of teaching at the, uh, I run a boot camp here in Philadelphia uh, quarterly alone. And I teach it by myself. I only take 24 leaders at a time and we help them develop their own personal leadership models and figure out how they can bring those to life in their home companies. I love doing that. And then I teach at the Higher Ambition Leadership Institute that I chair up in Boston with some friends from uh, Harvard. And uh, we're helping leaders with a one-year program there. And I'm enjoying all that work. And then I'm active, on, as you probably know, on social media and with our website. And Absolutely. We're, uh, we're trying to be a voice. We're trying to bring a practitioner's voice, mm. a, a realist, you know. Once I took a, uh, uh, one of my bosses had us take this uh, art of thinking quiz, which was sort of safer than the Myers-Briggs because you didn't want to talk about your feelings, uh, but you could talk about how your mind worked. And I, I tested out as, uh, in that framework as an idealist realist. And it's like, that didn't make any sense to me. And in the book, they talk about, well, here's a profession. Here's a way to think about it. Uh-huh. It's like a, a nurse. 
nurse is there to serve, but she's willing or he's willing to roll up their sleeves and and do the dirty work and actually do the work and deal with the blood and the guts of the reality of the situation and try and make it better. And that's sort of the mindset I'm bringing to all this work. Uh, I'm an idealist. I believe you have to pursue the ideal, but I believe you have to keep it real. And that's what we're doing here. And it's, it's proving to be most fulfilling. Mm. Well, from one idealist to another, uh, this is fulfilling work as well as we, uh, you know, each try to change the minds and hearts of people about leadership and the workplace and culture. I want to give you a chance to um, end this interview by letting you do a, what we call a mic drop, right? And that is bring the conversation home your way. So is there one thing you'd like people to absolutely walk away with that will make a difference in their lives? What's your mic drop moment? Uh, I don't know that it's a mic drop moment. I guess that's popular vernacular now, but I, I would end on a story. It'll be 10 years ago, July 2nd of this year, July 2nd, 2009. I was cutting the story somewhat short. I was riding in the backseat of an uh, automobile and I was involved in a near fatal automobile accident. Mm. My driver was going 80 miles an hour on the New Jersey Turnpike, 4th of July weekend, and we ran into a stop dump truck going 80 miles an hour. And he was all right because he veered a little bit to the left and the driver's side was okay and the airbag deployed and he was safe. And he was a good friend of mine. He took care of me for a lot of years, but, uh, I was not so fortunate, and I had 10 broken ribs, a broken clavicle, a broken sternum, but really life-threatening internal injuries. My wife at the time was helping our daughter move into an apartment in Washington, D.C. as she was getting ready to start her first job out of college. And they tracked my wife down, and I went into emergency surgery, and they got her up to the Audrey Fold Trauma Center in New Jersey, outside of Trenton, from Washington, D.C., while I was in surgery. I was in surgery for 18 hours. And uh, I'd never, never been operated on before. So uh, I woke up in the emergency room. I had tubes coming out of everywhere. And, went, and I was evidently out in the emergency room for hours. And my wife would not leave my side. They tried to get her to go take a bio break. She was determined to be there when I opened my eyes. She wanted to be there for me. And she was, and so I woke up and she was holding my hand. Fortunately, I was on a lot of drugs, mm. but <laughs> I was so totally disoriented, but she was right there looking at me. And she said two words to me. She said, I'm here. I'm here. And if there were two words, I would want every leader to be able to say in every moment to everyone they're leading, I would want them to say, I'm here. How can I help? I'm here. What's wrong? I'm here. How can we do this better? I want leaders to be fully present in the moment with their head, their heart, and their hands. And I want them to say, I'm here. So that's what this is all about. And it must be true because I learned it from my wife. Mm. And that's the message I would leave you with. That is the highest note that we could possibly leave on. And I really appreciate that. 
You know, it's an honor speaking to you, sir. You are truly a one of the foremost thought leaders of this generation. And I want to say thank you for uh, taking the time. Thank you. I'm just getting warmed up. Wait till you see me in the next <laughs> 20 years. I'm just getting warmed up, man. Well, I need to bring you back when the next book is published. So uh, count on that soon. Um, so if people want to connect with you, Doug, what's the best way to find you online? Well, you just go to KonaLeadership.com. For the record, uh, I don't get paid a salary for doing any of this. We do charge for a few things, my boot camp and a few other things, but we do that just to cover our cost. And I take no salary. And every year we come out ahead and we give all the money away to other organizations advancing the principles of leadership in the 21st century. So we are in this for all the right reasons. Reach out to us at conantleadership.com. We're proud of the work we do. We know we can do it better. We welcome everyone. They can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. We have the dialogue going. I'm intimately involved in the dialogue every week as we try and keep the conversation going with people who care about leading people with head, heart, and hands. So we've got the conversation going 24-7. Fantastic. When I come back, I will give you my key takeaways from this conversation, and I will do that after this important message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with a growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. So as I always do, I want to offer you, my listeners, three key takeaways from this great conversation I had with Douglas Conant. My first takeaway is this. He said, you cannot win in the marketplace if you don't first create a winning workplace. And the first step is getting the right people on the bus before you create a strategy that you can execute. Doug said that they built a community by helping people win first. And they did that. And that led to winning in the marketplace. And get this, to win in the marketplace, Doug had to look first at what leadership team he inherited. He also had to get the right leaders on the bus. So that meant having to make some really tough calls, like having to let go of 300 of his top 350 leaders in the first three years. As the saying goes, right? Everything rises and falls on leadership. My second takeaway is about this issue of women in leadership, more specifically the absence of women in high levels of leadership. Doug is very proud of an award that Campbell's won, the Catalyst Award. And this tells you a lot about who Doug Conant is. The Catalyst Award is given to companies recognized as having world-class diversity and inclusion practices. And Campbell's was one of those companies. Now, remember, this was a company that up until Doug became CEO was run by what he says, white men deciding what kind of soups women at home should be making. 
My last takeaway is about his best-selling book, Touch Points. And if you haven't read it, go buy it. It's truly a classic. Doug emphasizes the importance of brief, small interactions, which lasts anywhere from 30 seconds to two minutes. And as a leader, you have to be very fluid in these touch point moments because all management activities are happening in the moment, not in big strategy meetings, but in these micro moments. And we need to learn to be effective and fluid in these moments because most of us are really flying by the seat of our pants. Okay, I can't possibly end my takeaway segment without a mention of one of the leadership practices that Doug is famous for. So here's my bonus takeaway. Doug would personally thank his employees for significant contributions they were doing for the company. He would write 10 to 20 thank you notes a day, six days a week, and he did this for 10 years. It was his way of bringing to life the strategy they had, but in a really authentic way. And Doug said that he would FedEx these handwritten thank you notes to the people's homes. How cool is that? So when he retired, they did the math. He had written 30,000 notes. Now, they only had 20,000 employees. So everyone got one and some more than one. Wherever you walked inside Campbell Soup, you would see a thank you note pinned to someone's cubicle. So this little habit did something magical. It reinforced the things that they were doing. And it built relationships between Doug and his employees. Finally, I want to acknowledge Doug for his vulnerability in sharing with the world his heart-wrenching story about the car accident that almost killed him and how his wife stood by his side at every moment while he recovered. If there were two words that Doug would like every leader to say, it would be the words his wife told him when he woke up from an 18-hour surgery. I'm here. I'm here. And he adds, you should also ask, how can I help? So that's today's episode. On behalf of the amazing Doug Conant and my wonderful production team at One Stone Creative, go check them out. I'm Marcel Schwantes. Join me next week when I chat with Tomas Chamorro Permusic, Chief Talent Scientist at Manpower Group and one of the world's leading organizational psychologists. We'll be talking about his new book, which has a very provocative title, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. 